The Crude Life, every Monday through Thursday with a week in review on Friday. Welcome to the Crude Life Podcast. My name is Jason Spies, the North Dakota nomad, the shale play prophet. And I know many of you sometimes roll your eyes, but I'm going to tell you the name, the shale play prophet, comes from other people. In fact, I just got an email over the weekend from somebody on LinkedIn. They sent me a link and it said, you called it six months ago, baby, shale play prophet. So thank you very much, folks, for listening here to the Crude Life Podcast and understanding the information that we talk about here a lot of times is happening a few months before it actually happens. In fact, this weekend, I was just out for a walk, and somebody I knew around the area waved and said hello, said, hey, force majeure, you called it. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, NBA is going to stop paying players May 15th. Pretty sure that word force majeure you were talking about is going to come into play. So there you go, folks, just kind of keeping an eye on things for you. Somebody really does need to be the eyes and the ears for the people out there because if you take a step back and there's this big kerfuffle that happened with the uh, banker's bailout or the SBA loan, the PPP, sole proprietorship, this is, if you really, really take a look at what's going on here, folks, I'm not talking political here, okay? Let's just take a look at what happened. Okay, first of all, the coronavirus hit. It hit China. We live in a global world. The oil and gas world is a global industry like no other. Like no other. When you can have some country you've never heard of have an energy shortage, and that is going to have an impact on oil prices, it's a global market. And that's okay. Hey, that's okay, folks. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. The stuff that happened in China happened last fall. So there started to be a little bit of a production quarantine. There started to be some issues. There started to be some things that were happening, okay? Back then, Whiting, last July, laid off a third of its staff. The layoffs were starting to percolate in before the turn of the calendar this last year, 2020, okay? Then, of course, you had the shenanigans that happened with OPEC, with Russia and Saudi Arabia. They call it the one-two supply punch, you know, that sort of thing. You got punched from the supply side. You got punched from the demand side. It was like something we've never seen before. Okay, getting back to this bailout here, this PPP bankers bailout. So now that I've been able to track it and talk to some people, talk to the Federal Reserve, talk to some senators, talk to a number of different things, this timeline, it's very easy to say without a shadow of a doubt. There's not one person looking out for businesses that are trying to be a family-run business, run without debt, and trying to be a sole proprietorship, which scares me because the energy industry is filled with sole proprietorships. Filled with sole proprietorships. And if you weren't knee-deep, ass-deep, eyeball-deep in debt, you didn't get a loan. You didn't get a bailout. Actually, it's not even a loan. It's a bailout. So if you were somebody that had a buttload of debt at a bank, you were the preferred customer. 
You were the one that got it. So looking at the timeline here, this whole thing started because the energy industry had a lot of sole proprietors and small businesses that were getting punched. They were getting punched so bad that oil prices were dropping, energy production was dropping, and then the producers, the oil producers, came out and said, cut your pricing another 25%. So you had all this other stuff happening, and then after everybody cut their pricing from the last downturn and still haven't rebounded from that in terms of fluctuating their prices back up, now they were asked to cut it again, okay? So the politicians heard this and they said, we got to help these people. We have to help these people. So they went and they said, okay, it's by a first come first serve basis. Those people who need it, especially those in the energy industry, because listen, I understand 80% of businesses is small business. And I also understand that the mining industry is the only industry that has created jobs in the last 10 years and they're in trouble. They're in trouble that we need them to get bailed out. But then, boom, all of a sudden, the knee-jerk reaction is, no, we don't take bailouts. We don't take bailouts. Well, I wonder how many people took the bailout. I wonder how many people were so in debt they took the bailout. I wonder how many people that needed that money to float them for a few months because they have multi-million dollar companies with slow pay. They have CEOs that are making a quarter million dollars, not paying their bills to the sole proprietors and to the small businesses, but they got money, okay? So the sole proprietors, the small businesses, the family-run businesses, primarily oil and gas folk, went and applied online like they were supposed to do. A lot of these people applied before April 2nd. April 2nd rolls around. We have new rules now, new rules. We're gonna do a PPP, and an EIDL, I think it's what it's called. We're going to do two different loans. One's going to be free money, and the other one's going to be a 30-year mortgage, basically, at 3.75. That was the notification by email that the people who originally signed up for this, who needed the money in order to get through because they got hit, who needed the assistance, that's when they found out by email was on April 13th. So... What you had was you had people that signed up before April 1st. They found out on April 13th. By then, the banks were already out of money. So the banks had a good week of calling their preferred customers, the one that's, that were leveraged, to take care of first. That's what happened, folks. That's what happened. Now, I've asked both Senator Hoven and Senator Kramer for a list of who got the bailout, whether it be the banks or whether it be the individual businesses. And both of them said they don't know. There's no way of tracking it. So as of right now, that billion and trillion of dollars, according to Senator Hoven, they're not tracking it at all. They don't think a list like that exists. Now, I find that really hard to believe. I find that very hard to believe. But that's the reality of it. And the reason I bring this up, folks, the reason I bring this up is not to be political, okay? I don't care if that was the right thing to do or not in terms of the banker bailout. What I'm talking about here is the people who originally were supposed to get uh, some sort of assistance got nothing, got nothing. And what's happening here is the energy industry is getting squeezed out and no one 
is looking after the small guy, okay? The last time I checked, the energy industry needed the small guy because they were the ones that were quick and nimble. They were the ones that could drop pricing. They were the ones that could make sacrifices and go do a number of things because they were a sole proprietor or under a 10-man shop or they had a small business. So they could do these types of things. There's nobody looking out for them. There's not a politician looking out for them. There's not a petroleum organization looking out for them. I'll tell you what, the ones that I've reached out to in the past month, they basically are just protecting the big operators. There's, again, this is not meant to be political. This is, I'm asking, who is looking out for the little guy? Who's looking out for the family business? Who's looking out for the energy worker? Who is? Who's looking out for the oil and gas worker? The, the 80% of the small businesses out there, because unless you were leveraged with debt, you didn't get any of this assistance. You got, yeah, you got the 1,000, 1,200, 15 bucks or whatever it was that, again, that is different. That is what the average citizen had. And that's a whole different story, by the way. So what's also happened here, if you take a step back, the other reason why the small guy, the, the small business, is really screwed in this whole thing. So not, unless you were leveraged from a bank, you didn't get any assistance. So then 75% of it goes to your employee, which is great. Okay, so pay to stay home. You, know? you get paid to stay home while you're shopping online because there's no small business open. So a majority of this money that people are spending sitting at their house is going to their mortgage, their rent. It's going to the utilities. But then anything beyond that, which is not going to the bank that owns the, the house, it's going to a corporation. It's going to walmart.com, amazon.com. I saw Jeff Bezos made $24 billion last quarter. Again, folks, this is not a political diatribe. This is not a vent. This is a question. Who is looking out for the average person? Who is looking out for the little guy? Who is looking out for the person trying to do the right thing? The people that got taken care of were those people who were risking their livelihoods, people risking large amounts of debt. Those were the people that got taken care of first. And that's fine. If that's, if that's what this was going to be, then I wish they would have said it. Because I've talked to businesses who've gotten credit scores hit. I know a guy whose ex is actually making more money on unemployment than she's making working. And now he might lose his kid after he was the full-time custody owner because he always had the steady job. He always had the steady job, made good income. She bounced around seven jobs in six years. And now, because she has a steady government check coming in for more money than she made before, and he can't get multi-million dollar companies to pay him because of slow pay, he might lose his kid if she decides a challenge. Because the court don't care about then, they care about now. Talk to another small business owner where the landlord is actually tacking on late fees now after they got the bailout money. Well, the small business owner who originally applied on March 28th didn't get a dime. So these are real stories that are happening out there. And if you choose to think I'm being about politics, that's on you. That's on you. I'm not afraid of losing that person anymore. 
because we're beyond politics. We're beyond politics. We are getting to the point now where the government is literally picking winners and losers. They are allowing bankers to pick winners and losers. And they're not even tracking it. But my great, 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 great grandchild now has been strapped with debt so that a half a dozen rich guys can keep their planes parked for the next four months. That's the reality of what happened. And so when I think of what's been going on here, I just really wish that we could somehow figure out a free market. But I'm not even sure that's a thing anymore. I really don't. I mean, the oil and gas industry was the only market left that was somewhat free. And even that was pretty controlled. But that was more of a fraternity and good old boys network than it is with subsidies. But now if we're going to start picking winners and losers in the oil and gas industry, that's going to break up that good old boys network even more. There's going to be a smaller good old boys network when it's all said and done. But over 90% of the good old boys will be shedded away and, and get casted off in the land of serfs when it's done. So it's, there's a change coming, folks. There's a change coming. And it's started already. So if you're somebody who continuously gets left out in the cold and you're not part of the fraternity and you don't get any assistance from the petroleum councils because you're not a big enough fish, you can come on here in the crude life and you always have a place here. This is where the industry comes to talk. We actually have over a half a million social media followers if you do the math. If you take a look at all of our different social media sites from our YouTubes to our Facebook sites to the downloads we get on a regular basis, it's, a, it's substantial. And I thank you very much. I thank you very much. And hopefully it's because of information like we just did. Hopefully it is. I haven't even mentioned who today's guests are because I, this, uh, I, this stuff was hot. I mean, I was tearing up this weekend, folks. I was tearing up this weekend listening to the stories of family businesses that are going to lose their homes. Listening to family businesses that are losing their business, truckers losing their trucks because they couldn't get a bank to give them a loan for their receivables because their receivables were tied to the energy industry. And the energy industry is not Greta Thunberg approved. So therefore, you can't, not Al Gore approved. So the banks couldn't take on debt that was associated with the energy industry. So it was, it was a rough weekend for the, ener for the oil and gas industry that wasn't preferred. That's not part of the fraternity. Those oil and gas workers that didn't get an assistance from the government, who didn't get preferred from the banks, who don't get any help from a petroleum council or the different uh, oil and gas organizations that the state has to help out oil and gas companies. So if, if you know who helps out the little guy, let me know. I'd love to have him on the air because they need it right now. They need help. They need to find out how they can keep their businesses afloat or they got to go find something new. And I'd really hate to have somebody leave the oil and gas industry with a lot of inner rage because it's a good old boys network and it's a fraternity and they decide to pay you or not pay you and that sort of thing. Because quite honestly, the oil and gas industry is at unprecedented times. There's unprecedented times happening right now. It ain't going away in our lifetime. It ain't going away in our lifetime. But it might be different. It might be different when it's all said and done. 
Let's take a look at today's program, if you wouldn't mind, please. Let's take a look at today's program. John Clark, Clark Energy Consulting. Oh, is he coming on in just a minute or two? Great. He'll be on in just a minute or two to talk about the Texas Railroad Commission meeting that happened last week. That, by the way, the Texas Railroad Commission, they're like OPEC, so they're a big organization. Uh, they're going through some historic times. They're talking about controlling the production, which some say is good, some say is bad. Uh, I did notice that that is a change. That's one of the changes I'm talking about. You have a CEO, Parsley Energy, Matt Gallagher, who's scheduled to be on this program in May. He's talking about cutting production. Again, these are changes to the industry. I'm telling you, folks, it's a different industry. It's a different industry. When the industry's taking bailouts, that's, that's not normal. But it's the new normal, okay? The new normal is for the business that have leverage debt get taken care of first and the oil and gas industry takes free money and bailouts so that's that, that is the new normal folks don't let anybody tell you differently that's the new normal bradley hullier coming up a little bit later on in the program msl oil field services bradley hullier coming up and talking about the covid19 shutdown the coronavirus pandemic also a european update as some of their activities happening across the pond what is going on in Houston? Bradley Hullier, MSL Oilfield Services, gives a description of Houston's downtown commerce. So we're going to talk with him a little later in the program and our daily radio update on the podcast. Aaron Jordan, president of Blackwater Environmental, talks about how their business is booming in Wyoming. Our sponsor today is WIC. WIC has been a leading industrial insulation company in the mountain states for over 41 years. WIC provides their partners with safety, quality, and production on every project, big or small, but mostly they have integrity. From insulation to fireproofing to asbestos abatement to scaffolding, WIC believes perfection is possible and achievable on all projects. They're based in the Rockies and serving the industry west of the Mississippi. Not limited to it, but hey, one step at a time, folks. WIC will take care of all of your insulation needs, leading the industry in safety, quality, and productivity. For more information, check out their website, WICWYO.com. That's WICWYOMING.com. Of course, you can always check out our links at the Crude Life show page. All right, let's get to our first guest here, John Clark with Clark Energy Consulting. And I can see via the video chat that Provolone is going to be patching him through. So I'll tell you what, folks, I'm going to go grab a quick cup of coffee. And I would like to come back in about 30 seconds and join John Clark. So uh, we'll be back in about 30 seconds. Grab yourself a cup of coffee. Stand up. Do a quick stretch. Do what you got to do. We'll be back. And John Clark with Clark Energy Consulting. We're going to talk a little bit about the Texas Railroad Commission meeting, the thoughts, some of the reactions that have happened since then. My name is Jason Spies. You're listening to the Crude Life Podcast. We'll see you in about 30 seconds. The Crude Life is sponsored in part by Historic, the first full conversion refinery to be built in the U.S. in over 40 years. Innovative, the cleanest, most technologically advanced downstream project ever. The model for future shale basin projects. Groundbreaking. 
the Davis Refinery. All right, welcome back, folks. We have John Clark on the line with us, Clark Energy Consulting. I wanted to dive into this Texas Railroad Commission a little bit more, and I know not only is Mr. Clark in the energy sector, he's knowledgeable, but I believe he's also out of, aren't you out of Texas too? That's right, Jason, here in Houston, the energy capital of the world. That's what I thought. So, okay, because sometimes, I'll be honest, uh, my mental Rolodex isn't what it used to be, you know. It's still okay, but it's more of a, I don't know, it's not quite a three-hole punch anymore. Uh, So anyway, but that's a different discussion for a different day. That's why I rely on experts, and you are one of the experts that has dived in and taken a look at not only the Texas Railroad Commission, but my understanding is you've even talked to some people and even done a little bit extra research on a, uh, a few topics and a few different things. So let's talk a little bit about yesterday's Railroad Commission meeting that happened, the unprecedented Railroad Commission meeting. Now, you are, um, you've are you got some lineage about oil and gas, but I wanted just to start off and set the table a little bit about the power and the importance behind really what yesterday was, because we had James Coleman on yesterday, as well as Bruce Bullock with uh, Southern Methodist University, uh, the School of uh, Law and also the School of Business. And they both kind of mentioned really that, uh, you know, the the Texas Railroad Commission is kind of considered OPEC in terms of the the power behind it, that when the Railroad Commission makes a move, it is felt across the globe. And we talked about that a little bit and. Yeah, I didn't know how aware you were of that or if you looked into that a little bit, but I, I just wanted to let you comment on that a little bit from your perspective. You know, like I said, you, you have a history in it, but you're, you know, you're younger than me. So I, I, I had to at least bring that up, John. Sure, Jason. Yeah, so I've, I'm born and raised in Houston. I've lived here for 30 years and uh, I've never seen anything like this. I, you know, I've studied the history of oil and uh, certainly, you know, the impact of the Railroad Commission, you're right, it was the former OPEC before OPEC was established in the 70s. So the Railroad Commission is is was really founded on the basis uh, to produce oil and gas and energy efficiently. And in the past, it was the Railroad Commission actually would uh, curtail or prorate production to move prices. And so, and and basically, the uh, the statute that the commission has is to prohibit waste. And so, w- yesterday we had a unprecedented meeting with the road commission. The three commissioners had an open meeting, and there were fifty eight different testimonies from people across the board: large, small producers, uh, think tanks, investors, uh, even university professors. All commented on. What they thought, and it's 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 interesting because this discussion has not come up since the 70s, and pr- really the 50s, and then the 30s, and so it's been 50 years since the Railroad Commission has even thought of or talked about this, and so you know the the question is you know does supply and demand um, is is there excess waste as a result of supply uh, surplus or demand shock? And many argue that, yes, there is waste, but at the heart of it 
and I went to the Railroad Commission's website, and I'm uh, the OG brief that I'm going to publish today will have links to a lot of the documents, speakers, comments, and so uh, definitely check it out. I've kind of spent the last 24 hours synthesizing and capturing a lot of what people had to say, and I came away listening to that meeting with some interesting uh, enlightenment insights and um, actually more questions than answers. Uh, and so it's, uh, I'll kind of talk to some of that, um, you know, my background as a petroleum engineer, second generation petroleum engineer. Uh, it's, you know, Texas being a economic powerhouse, oil and gas production. You know, there's a lot of other states in America that are watching what the Railroad Commission does and even across the world. And so it was uh, certainly um, historic time to, to listen in. One of the things I took away from yesterday's meeting in terms of talking with the different gentlemen was the environmental angle, how just the sheer reduction of, of production could really appease some of the environmentalists out there to where it actually, you know, I mean, the conversation is this is this would be a good step in the right direction to stop the protesting and, and allow this stuff to move forward. I didn't know if you saw that or heard that or, or got into that part of it, but uh, just what's your thoughts on that environmental angle in terms of, you know, really having an honest look at it? Yeah, what, what I've heard was, you know, there's so many different viewpoints, agendas and motivations behind each testimony, and it's very evident given the diverse uh, nature from each speaker. So what I what I heard was there were some people – that had their own position or agenda to say, well, you know, like the small producers, for example, they may not even be able to sell their oil to midstream or refineries because they're on a spot contract. The same is true of flaring. You know, for a lot of the small companies that are forced to flare, it's because they don't have the pipelines in place. And so there's economic waste by, uh, you know, not being able to have the infrastructure or the scale to, to build out and pipe the gas. And so it's actually a cost burden to the smaller operators. Now, there's a lot of larger operators that have the infrastructure and they can reduce their flaring. And so one side of the coin is, okay, may, you know, some people suggested we uh, curtail production by reducing emissions. Well, that may end up benefiting the larger companies and still hurting the smaller companies. Uh, what I really took away was a lot of the large companies that still have access to debt and have scale are and have long-term contracts are at an advantage here. And the small producers are at a significant disadvantage in the takeaway capacity and the question of flaring. So you get these testimonies that mix policy with, uh, you know, supply and demand fundamentals. And, and there's plenty of people that have you know, inserted their own political agendas in their testimonies. You know, what you have to do when you when you listen through, and you can go back, and I'll post the link to the archive, uh, you can, you, you know, actually uh, discern what the company's, you know, ba agenda may be and try to understand, you know, where they're coming from. You also have more of the neutral people, like the professors and, and think tanks that, you know, some of them, like the API, American Petroleum Institute, uh, they were neutral. They didn't really say one or the other. They had a chief economist that spoke to some of the numbers on demand and how that's, you know, obviously impacted from the coronavirus lockdowns, as well as, you know, the supply situation. Uh, you know, the the question is, 
should the Railroad Commission do anything at all? And if so, what and how? Because they, you know, you got to think about this, Jason. The Railroad Commission hasn't enacted anything like this in 50 years. And the way they did it in the past was by taking all of the production as a total pie and each well divided up as their piece of the pie. And back in the 50s, they said, you know, you can only produce, uh, you know, up to, I think it was like 600 barrels per month or like eight barrels uh, per day. And so, or, or eight days of the month. I don't even remember what <laughs> what it is. It, it's been so long ago that there's, you know, the, the way that the, the Railroad Commission can look at how to tackle this problem, they even have questions. Like the commissioners were saying, you know, how do we even do this? You know, you could either say, let's uh, let's have equal pain across the board. So every company should reduce by a certain percentage. Uh, well, that that may work and um, be be well, but it's you know, there's also questions on. Well, what if I you know what if I want to cut more? You know what what can I do? Can I trade my uh, allowance of, of production cuts to another company? And that's something that. Uh, professors at Rice University were, was talking about. Uh, there's so many different ways to look at the problem, but at the end of the day, the number of 10% cut was thrown out there, which would be about a million barrels per day. What is a million barrels per day going to do in this market when OPEC announced a 10 million barrel per day cut, but many as analysts estimate 20 to 30 million barrels per day of demand reduction? It's not gonna. It's not gonna be a drop in the bucket. Jason, but others say, well, if the Railroad Commission be, can be the leader in this, you know, other states like Oklahoma and North Dakota may follow. Uh, but again, in the U.S., we produce 13 million barrels per day, you know, plus the 10 that OPEC announced cuts for would still be a shortfall to uh, remedy the markets because of the demand shock. So, you know, the, the other side of the coin is, why should we disadvantage Texas producers by forcing them to cut, even though there may be waste? Okay, people recognize that there may be waste, but is that going to really change the price of oil? And many suggest it won't. So by cutting, we saw OPEC cut, you know, announced their cuts, and oil prices dropped to $21, I think, yesterday. So we're not seeing the market appreciate any of the cuts right now. So cutting and falling prices will only disadvantage Texas producers, in my opinion. But it's it's great to hear the discussion on this and the different topics. And certainly I walked away learning, you know, a lot more about the different considerations. You know, others talk about do we fully shut in wells or just curtail production? What is the impact does that have on, on damaging the reservoir? A lot of these wells that are fully shut in or uh, they may not come back to their full production and so what impact would that have on the producer? There's so It's a very complex situation, of course, and even many of the commissioners are struggling to understand how to actually tackle the problem. I don't know if there's even the resources, personnel to do that in a fair way. So the best option may be to do nothing. Lisa's, how about the silver lining or is it going to impact and hurt um, leases are really, you know, at the end of the day, the people. And a lot of the people that listen to this program own mineral leases. 
And they like to know, okay, is my mineral lease going to go up in value? Is it going to get nationalized? What the heck is going on here? So um, was anybody talking about leases at this thing yesterday in terms of what kind of impact that's going to have on, on, you know, the average mineral leaseholder? Yeah, so we listened to um, some of the industry uh, industry groups on uh, the mineral side, and many of the minerals uh, companies were against. I'm sorry, they were for proration because, in their view, they don't want to sell oil, their oil and their minerals. Which, when you own the minerals, you own it, for, you know, for the life of the well or the reservoir, and you know, you want to protect that. So uh, depletion is a huge factor, but also, uh, you know, you want to sell that for a better price, you know, and many minerals owners said, you know, if, if we would be happy to cut our production, if we can get a better price, the thing is, I don't think that's going to happen. And that's really where the question of economic waste has to uh, recognize that any curtailment, you know, will the curtailment raise prices? And I think the answer is no. And so, um, you know, the, I don't know if it'll happen, but it's certainly I, I appreciated the commission's willingness to hear all the testimonies, uh, the minerals companies and the large independents. Their position was typically, you know, like Pioneer, um, Continental Resources. You know, they were saying, let's curtail. But I think they have hidden agendas that, uh, you know, kind of mask what uh what's really happening you have the large producers the majors that also have downstream refineries that are benefiting from low price and they have the scale and access to capitals and so you know their agenda is well let's squeeze all the small producers and maybe we can buy their assets when they go bankrupt as you know that's how capital free markets work and so you know the question of free markets was raised you know are we in a free market um and so it (laughs) That's that's the part where uh, you know I came away with. Go ahead. What was the? What did they say on that? Sorry to interrupt you, but um, I'm I'm very curious because I've said for a few t- for for a while now that I I truly believe the oil and gas industry is the last bastion for a capitalistic somewhat of a free market society. Now it's not totally free in my opinion. There is subsidies involved, and there are politicians that funnel and centralize uh, business on behalf of some of the big majors. But uh, what was said on that, by the way? Sorry to interrupt. (laughs) Yeah, no, the the Rice University professor, uh, Ken uh, Medlock, answered that one best, that, um, you know, as far as free markets, yes, we are in a free market. And, you know, the, the price of oil is truly supply and demand. And so um, I'm a believer in free markets. And I also think that, you know, what the comments were on free markets are the the only way that our industry has been able to unlock shale resources is through innovation and efficiency. And, you know, a lot of times if, you know, our industry has had to evolve because of price challenges and as as hard as it may be, especially for the little guys, it's ultimately made a better industry. And so that's the way I see it. And I and I think many uh, of the industry think tanks are also in the same boat. And those are the same people that are against proration because at the end of the day, you know, we will have a better industry that will be more efficient and and 
be able to survive for the long term. I think, you know, if uh, we if we say that we're not in a free market, we need government intervention, that only opens the door for, um, you know, the potential loss of social license to operate in the future. This is a really interesting time that we're at right now because the Los Angeles, I'm sorry, the Las Vegas, is it the Golden Knights? No, that's the hockey team. What's the name of their football team? The Las Vegas Raiders because they moved from Oakland. Okay, now I'm actually processing this as we're, this is real-time processing, John Clark. (laughs) Right here on The Crude Life, I'm processing this info real-time. They... Their executives came out because construction is still going on at their stadium. And they flat out said, the only thing that'll make us not reach our deadline is the government. And that's kind of how I feel about the oil and gas industry right now. And, and, and because they can have as free market as they want, to be honest. And the only restrictions that they're really having is, is the government. You know, you take a look at a lot of the different Colorado, you take a look at New York, you take a look at California. This is my way to transition into what kind of regulatory discussions, I guess, were had that you saw in the Texas Railroad Commission, because I did ask uh, James Coleman about it, and I did ask Bruce Bullock about it as well. Um, to me, when I started hearing about, you know, the free market and regulations and pulling back production, I thought, boy, what I know about Texas and the bravado involved with Texas, I'm not sure about how being compared to California, Colorado, or New York would be received, but I understand it, it needed to be talked about. So was that brought up at all? You know, the, the amount of regulation comparing it with other States. And, and, and I think you understand the question I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit long and winded but it it needed to have some context right i mean as as far as regulation there were suggestions to kill two birds with one stone by uh forcing the operators that have greater than two or three percent emissions to shut in their wells or curtail their production and so i mean that that's a political agenda I, i think that's where you have to be careful because you don't and this you know the mandate from the railroad commission is not uh to change policy but it does bring good questions that I think need to be further, uh, you know, dived into because we do need to address the emissions problem. Even though we've grown production while reducing emissions, we still are a large emitter. And I think that's something as far as social license to operate, we have to continue to work on. I just don't think it's going to come at the hands of the Railroad Commission, uh, you know, and, and it, but it is coming and many recognize that. And so whether that's from the federal or state level, you know, it's currently at the state level. Uh, there have been talks of federal mandates for emissions. So I think that would not be something wildly crazy to see in the next few years. Uh, but at the moment, the, the state manages that. And, uh, you know, uh, I think the position that the Railroad Commission in Texas has is that, you know, we uh, we need to manage it. You know, I think at this point it's still voluntary but uh, there's been more talk of, you know, regulation on emissions and uh, even managing water, you know, recycling water. And I think there's certainly opportunities to do that. And the, the, the reason why is because if we can show, continue to show the public and the states like California, New York, Colorado, et cetera, that we can, you know, economically grow production, reduce our f- carbon footprint, you know, we will continue to have social license to operate. And at these prices, 
you can't get any more energy dense fuel source at such a low price. Overall thoughts, what'd you think of the meeting yesterday? What you consumed, people you've talked to, kind of some of the, the connecting the dots, if you will, just kind of give us your overall synopsis. Yeah, it was, it was great to hear from, you know, the various uh, testimonies and uh, you know, what I took away was that there's just so many different scenarios and, you know, ultimately this was, you know, great to, to hear, but it felt like I was sitting in a courtroom all day and this was just the beginning of it. If proration were to occur, uh, there may be a longer time in litigation than we are in this downturn. So uh, I personally, you know, my personal view is that I don't think any regulation will help here, uh, but certainly happy to hear, you know, from uh, the testimonies of the smaller producers and, and just how, you know, the upstream industry impacts the total value chain, you know, midstream and downstream. I learned a little bit about, you know, the contracts and, and how uh, the short-term contracts are being canceled or force majeure. Uh, the longer-term contracts are, you know, with the major companies. So starting, I, I really learned more about, you know, the different agendas that people have, uh, but which really speaks to the fact that, you know, we've been able to, uh, the state of Texas and, the, you know, the U.S., North Dakota, Oklahoma, um, Colorado, and other places have, have continued to be able to provide affordable energy uh, efficiently. And it's going to be challenging uh, looking forward. But, you know, uh, you know, short-term pain will yield long-term gain. Thank you, John Clark with Clark Energy Consulting. All the links and the OG brief is available at thecrudelife.com. That is thecrudelife.com. All right, we're going to get to our next interview right now. Bradley Hollier with MSL Oilfield Services. All right, let's go. Let's get a mic level check provolone, please. Bradley Hollier, MSL Oilfield Services Incorporated. Excellent. Thank you for joining us today. Mic levels look pretty good there. I'm switching mine up now. Mine don't as good. All right, there we go. little uh, behind-the-scenes stuff there. MSL Oilfield Services. And first of all, let's talk a little bit about the COVID-19 shutdown, the coronavirus pandemic, how that's impacting you and your business and your company. Just an update from all the different... Uh, angles if you will and first off are you guys still you know operating and and that sort of thing yes we are yeah for us um here in the u.s it slowed things down as projects were put on hold and uh some customers had to curtail production uh same for overseas uh several customers you know either curtailing production or uh projects are put on hold because we can't get personnel into the countries it's a personnel issue, not so much a uh, lease or business, I guess, activity issue. More of a personnel issue, huh? Yes, it is. It's more of a personnel issue for us. Um, the reason being is actually it's the downturn has actually generated more business for us due to the type of uh, products we have. They're uh, more economical ways to make wells produce more oil. Let's talk about that a little bit because you said, you know, a magical phrase that I think a lot of people might want to explore. So me, as my journalist roots and background, I got to ask you, uh, how are you guys finding business, you know, during during this downturn? Because it was a very sharp, you know, like like I mentioned to somebody like the spigot just stopped. Yet there are businesses out there that are finding new opportunities. And I said for a long time. 
the, the you just got to make a better mousetrap, make a better steak sandwich and whatever that means in your industry type of a thing. So you guys are one of those companies that are doing that. Um, talk to me about that if you wouldn't mind. So we started a couple of years with a product is, um, you know, we were introduced to here in the U.S. And we've put in a lot of development and testing behind it in multiple applications around the world. Um, since we had all the data to move forward, this downturn actually just accelerated those projects because now the economics are even more on our side to start rolling the product and projects out to the, the customers we've been developing with. Uh, particularly overseas and in South America, where you know heavy oil and um, oil quality are a very big challenge. We had a guy on from Ghana yesterday, a gentleman Hanks Oils, who he works for, and you know that just kind of shows the the state of oil and gas. You know where it it is a global marketplace at the end of the day. And you've mentioned overseas several times. Talk to me about your international business a little bit. Are you seeing an increase like uh, we've seen here at the Crude Life? Uh, yes, um, particularly on heavy oil applications and ultra-heavy oil in Oman is where we're concentrating now. Uh, also in the Emirates, uh, a couple of projects in Kuwait. Um, West Coast of Africa, we have a few that are ongoing. And then we have some refinery applications as well uh, throughout the Middle East that we're working on. So our product, you know, works on multiple levels and it can be used on multiple applications. So that's, you know, what we've been testing and working towards uh, setting up our company. Uh, we recently just signed several JVs um, in the Middle East with companies there. So we have approval from several of the uh, NOCs working in those countries. How about when it comes to the Americas? Are you guys in... Um... A, a number of shale plays are you in one more than the other talk to me about shale play usa uh well we have service partners that are working in both the eagle fern and the permian with the product um and then we are working in the gulf of mexico both deep water and shelf uh, with the product as well uh we have several several customers there that and clients that we're working with um you know we we actually work as a distributor and technical support for the product while they have the, the application. Just looking and at your, us, oh, go ahead. For us, it's been going really good with that. With, with the different distributors and, and just kind of the network you've got built? Yeah, we do the same thing in uh, South America since we distribute, you know, several different products to these customers. Um, you know, it allows us to use our already built um, network to get, you know, multiple products that are related to either flow assurance or, you know, uh, well optimization. Are you hearing much from South America? Um, I haven't heard much even in the news when it comes to the COVID-19 or the coronavirus down in South America. Are, are you hearing um, anything? It's not as widespread. Um, uh, they're all under lockdown as well, except for Brazil. <laughs> they seem to be the exception to the rule, which is actually working out in our benefit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if, if I could travel there, if our team could travel there, it'd be a lot better uh, just due to the, <laughs> the the necessity of having someone that does the, you know, the technical parts of what we're doing on these projects. Where are you based out of? I'm based out of Houston. Okay, you're down in Houston. What's it like down there right now? Uh, it's a bit crazy. <laughs> Everything's locked down. Nobody can do anything. Uh, most of our customers and contacts, everybody's working from home, so... Uh, we manage, we do what we can. 
um, just trying to make the best out of the situation. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, are you guys finding any, um, you know, obviously things are going to change and, and, you know, for everybody, it's going to be different restaurant industry. They've got their, their issues, the insurance industries, you know, all kinds of different things. Uh, the oil and gas industry, I, I, I think that the change is going to be quite remarkable uh, with, with the amount of remote drilling and some of the, you know, big data coming into play. And you take a look at the, just the trajectory, I guess would be the right word of the paradigm shift that oil and gas was already going through. And then to go kind of get hit by the one, two, you know, punch of uh, OPEC, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and um, the coronavirus on the supply and demand shock at the same time, if you will. It just seems, you know, to me that uh, the industry is going to, it's going to continue on, but it's going to be a little bit different coming, you know, next year. Um, I'm not sure if I made any sense to you at all, but <laughs> what do you... No, I don't no, know. I, I agree with that. I think there's going to be some changes in the way things are operated. Um, the flexibility for remote operating is probably going to be more prevalent in the future from what we see, which is fine for us because we have a few technologies that, you know, stand alone, uh, run on satellite so they can be monitored from anywhere in the world. Um, so that actually plays into our benefit, uh, the way we work. How's the pipeline monitoring, uh, going? I, that's just seen some incredible advancements in the last, I don't know, call it five years. I mean, it has in the last 15 years, but the last five years, the synchronization of drones and, um, on, on the ground, uh, optics, I guess, in agriculture, Seems like it would have been a, just an a intelligent lateral move to the pipeline industry. Um, I, I don't know if we're there yet with drones and, and pipeline, pipeline you know, pay, uh, um, inspections uh, syncing up in real time yet. But uh, talk to me a little bit about that innovation in the pipeline industry, if you wouldn't mind, because it's really cool. It's really cool. So this technology actually uses uh, fiber optic cables that are laid near the pipelines. Okay. And they produce an acoustic signal and analyze that signal for any type of intrusion or change in that background noise. From there, it uses artificial intelligence to actually uh, detect and display exactly what the interference is, whether it's a person walking up to a pipeline, um, uh, machinery, a car, you know, someone's digging, or if it's an animal walking up to it, it can distinguish between all those. At the same time, it can also analyze what's going on inside the pipeline, if there's any type of flow changes, uh, if it's deposition, and then it can also detect, you know, the difference between, say, a hydrate, a uh, any type of paraffin or asphalt team deposition. It can tell those things. That's like the technology in Ocean's Eleven or Thirteen, where. I think, I think they said that if a shrew was digging next to the casino, they'd know it. <laughs> so actually, this this uh, technology was developed from uh, Lockheed Martin from their Smart City okay um, system. Uh, the developers on this, they're out of the UK as well, where my partner's based, and um, he's been working with these guys for years. And uh, it's a very good piece of equipment. So we got involved with them a couple of years ago and started putting more into the oil and gas applications, specifically around uh, offshore monitoring of flow lines and pipelines. 
That's incredible. All that's through acoustic, but that's that's the world it is. Uh, a lot of it's you know sensors and sensors go beyond just the visual lidar and traditional you know 3D type of a thing that people are used to. And you start talking about sound waves and acoustic, that's a whole different level of uh, technology. That's incredible. Yeah, and this one's a little bit different because it actually uses light through the fiber optic cable. So the sample rate is you know, thousands per millisecond. So I have absolutely, detect... no, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay, st- okay start over here. <laughs> so, it, so you have your sound waves and then you have light waves. So the, the, the frequency is completely different. Uh, with the light wave, it's a much faster um, sampling rate. So if there's ever an intrusion into that environment or just a disruption in the, the, the wave frequency, it can detect it at a much faster rate and, in a, you know, much more accurate than the previous um, technologies that were around. Well, of course, because you know, the speed of light is so much faster than the speed of sound. Right. Even on the micro scale like that. And I didn't I didn't even realize that um, because I had never thought of it, but it makes total sense that you could layer those technologies and utilize them off each other because at the end of the day, they're probably the same. So, hmm. Yeah, we, this one, this technology was actually so using the uh, smart city grid system that Lockheed Martin developed years ago for actually rail monitoring uh, for trains. Okay. Um, we've adapted it to you know pipeline monitoring, and it's used throughout the world. Um, it was originally developed to stop uh, stop digging and hot tapping of pipelines in, in you know third world countries where you know people were stealing oil and products off of pipelines. So it was actually pinpoint to tell them, you know, if someone's digging in the area, if someone's intruded into that space, so they could actually send out, you know, security. How many different locations do you guys have? I'm looking at uh, your website right now, and, you know, you, you've mentioned South America, you've mentioned Europe. Uh, how many different so we, countries are you guys in, and how many, like, just go through that for a sec. So we have distributors in 126 countries around the world uh, for various products. Okay. okay. So we, our and, reach is fairly, fairly, fairly long. And the the reason I ask is, um, I, I just you know without giving away your you know your portfolio portfolio and your business model or anything like that, are you seeing any trends anywhere from any either locations or any certain area of your business? Because even I'm looking at your products, you guys have a lot of different products, and you know you've mentioned that. You know, we some different products you've seen that you, you, uh, there's a spike in. But are there any trends that you're seeing that you're kind of looking at and uh, just surprised at either a location or a different part of your industry that, you know, has kind of stood out in the last month and a half since the COVID-19 or even since the OPEC uh, pricing happened? Because really that's when a lot of the uh, kind of the struggles and issues and questions started happening in the energy sector. I would say the the ones that have really increased for us is around uh, production optimization, and uh, which is primarily paraffin and asphaltine control. Um, you know, we have products that deal with that particular application, and that seems to be the focus right now because our products are, you know, it's non-intrusive. It's you pump a product, you know, depending, depending on the application and. You know, we've had a really good success with that around the world. That seems to be, you know, the the one that's really taken off here in the past few months. Um, we've also, 
had a, a, a very good increase in um, in green technologies. Uh, we seem to have a lot of interest in that. Uh, we're actually developing and registering with the EPA right now a green buy side for the oil and gas market that we've done some testing on and had excellent results on it. Uh, for all our indications, the EPA loves it because it's non-toxic, not only to animals, but non-toxic to humans. Okay. I could see where the green stuff is really going to take off. I've um, That's one of the things I've noticed with the COVID-19 shutdown is the amount of um, save the planet because humans aren't moving around stories. They've um, A lot of them popped up, just a lot of them. And, I mean, it's common sense, but it's just amazing. I read one the other day about the seismic activity on the planet is down, and I'm going, man, people are really spending a lot of resources on this. Holy smokes, man. They're just taking a look at everything here. So um, anyway, just rather interesting to me. But uh, talk to me a little bit about, you know, if, if we missed anything or any any thoughts that you might have as, as we kind of look at the clock here. Appreciate the time. You know, you guys are doing great out there, expanding your business a little bit, it sounds like, you know, and still moving with the distributors and um, essential. You guys are deemed essential by, by most of the uh, state and city governments, aren't you? Yes. So you got, by the way, is your outside sales affected at all? I know a lot of people on LinkedIn especially like to know what's going on in the world of sales. And I think uh, the office jobs, I think people have a handle on, you know, it's, it's your home office and however you decorate it. And maybe you got Zoom and maybe you got Skype and maybe you got a few other things. But it's the outside salespeople that I think... Um, People are curious. How, what are they doing? How, how are you know? They're... Yeah, it's, it's been affected in the in, in the way that you know. There's no, there's really no way to go meet customers face to face right now. So it's you know, it's emails, phone calls, and you know, whatever method we can to stay in compliance. You know, with whatever restrictions we have. Um, I know, for instance, I've had customers have been begging me to go back to the Middle East for the past month, but you know. I can get over there. I just can't get back. <laughs> right. So I mean, exactly. <laughs> so, it, and, and there's things like that too, where I've even heard that where, uh, in, in say Minnesota and North Dakota, up in my neck of the woods, we, we've got one state on a two week, you know, lockdown and the other one's not. So yeah. if you, if, if you go into the one state's borders, can you get back? <laughs> yeah, that's, we, we're having that same challenge. Uh, we just, manage what we can and uh, you know deal with it however best way possible well i'll give you some final thoughts anything we missed anything you want to reiterate or you know plug your business or maybe you got a good barbecue recipe i don't know i like to give guests the final <laughs> words so uh no, just, floor is yours well, was, yeah, i just encourage everybody you know keep moving forward and as soon as things turn back around and everybody's able to get back to work i think for the oil and gas industry it's going to be a fairly fast turnaround all indications. To listen to the full-length interview, visit thecrudelife.com. The Crude Life is sponsored in part by Historic, the first full conversion refinery to be built in the U.S. in over 40 years. Innovative, the cleanest, most technologically advanced downstream project ever. The model for future shale basin projects. Groundbreaking. The Davis Refinery.
And that's going to do it for the Crude Life Podcast. I'd like to thank John Clark with Clark Energy Consulting, Bradley Hollier with MSL Oilfield Services, and coming up in just a moment here, Aaron Jordan, President of Blackwater Environmental, with our daily radio update on the podcast. Also, we'd like to thank WIC for being our sponsor here. WIC has been a leading industrial insulation company in the Mountain States for over 41 years. WIC provides partners with safety, quality, and productivity on every project, big or small. But most of all, they do it with integrity. From insulation and fireproofing to asbestos abatement and scaffolding, WIC believes perfection is possible and achievable on all projects. They're based in the Rockies and serving the industry west of the Mississippi. Not limited to, but one step at a time west of the Mississippi to start off. They're a leader in safety, quality, and production. Check out their website, W-I-C-W-Y-O. That's W-I-C-Wyoming.com. Of course, you can always go to the Crude Life show page and check that out as well. All right, folks, that's going to do it for today. We've got other links. Thank you, Moody River Band. Thank you to Hatching Leaders for being our sponsor here at the studio and the Bakken Barbecue for being the Bakken Barbecue phone line sponsor. From the staff. Oh, Provolone, thank you very much. Excellent job today. I know it's a Monday, so I'm just trying to get through this day already. But from the staff here at the Crude Life Podcast, my name is Jason Spies, asking you to always remember energy is more than an industry. It's a way of life. The Crude Life with host Jason Spies. My name is Jason Spies, and this is the Crude Life Daily Update. On today's episode, we talk with Aaron Jordan from Blackwater Environmental. In just a moment, part of our exclusive interview with Aaron Jordan with Blackwater Environmental right here on the Crude Life Daily Update. Yeah, um, most of our office staff, the girls have been working from home. Uh, me and Dave have been in the office the last couple weeks. No big deal. Um, pretty easy Pretty easy to have the girls work from home because all their stuff's on their computers. Everything we've got is, you know, pretty mobile these days. So, um even Dave here, he works remotely most of the time, so it's been pretty easy. The office cleaning girls has come in like normal and just cleaned the office. And I mean, you do what you can, I guess. Wash your hands is the biggest thing. Like, yeah. what I'm getting out of it. So. You guys have had some business, and and you guys have had to, you know, stay busy at the same time, transition through some of this. Yeah, you know we. This is usually one of our busiest times of the year, and I'm not going to say it's not busy. Um, we had some major turnarounds at some facilities hold off till the fall of this year and possibly the spring of next year. So a lot of our bigger jobs have been pushed back, but, you know, we, we usually amp up this time of year, hire some more staff, and we kind of shied away from that, and we shouldn't have because I – I had to jump in a hole the other day and sandblast for about five and a half hours. So um, we probably should have went ahead and hired, and we still might the way things are looking. Um, you know, I, I kind of got nervous for a minute and didn't hire some of our seasonal guys, some of our summer guys. and It might have been a mistake now that we're looking at it. You know, we were having a talk this morning about it that, geez, we should have just hired them guys because it got – kind of busy there because they weren't some of these facilities weren't able to bring in as many contractors as they would have liked for some of this work because of you know travel bans and things like that so they kind of leaned on us local contractors just to pump up and get it done and that's basically what happened so 
um, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. So in one way we should have hired some guys, and the other way it really made us yeah, made us more profitable because we had less guys and made us really look at the guys we had going, geez, you know, we've got the crews to do this. To listen to the full-length interview with Aaron Jordan with Blackwater Environmental or to check out other exclusive interviews, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. While you're there, be sure to check out our growing army of energy enthusiasts on our social media page. We have YouTube, Facebook, even the Twitters. Check it out at thecrudelife.com. From the staff here at the Crude Life Daily Update, my name is Jason Spies asking you to always remember energy is more than an industry, it's a way of life. The Crude Life is sponsored in part by Historic, the first full conversion refinery to be built in the U.S. in over 40 years. Innovative, the cleanest, most technologically advanced downstream project ever. The model for future shale basin projects. Groundbreaking. The Davis Refinery.
the first full conversion refinery to be built in the U.S. in over 40 years. Innovative, the cleanest, most technologically advanced downstream project ever. The model for future shale basin projects, groundbreaking. The Davis Refinery. The Crude Life, every Monday through Thursday with a week in review on Friday.
breaks in the place It's just you and me, baby Singing the like we did in the good old days Yeah, we're singing it like they did in the good old days Because we're back to the way
The Crude Life every Monday through Thursday with a week in review on Friday.